1: My guest is singer-songwriter Vonda Shepard, performing in Myron's Cabaret Jazz at the Smith Center, this Friday and Saturday, March 20th and 21st at 7 p.m. For ticket information, go to thesmithcenter.com, and for everything about Vonda Shepard, go to vondashepard.com, and you can follow her on Twitter at Vonda Shepard. And Vonda, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks, Ira. It's great to be on the show.
1: I have to ask you the question that America wants to know. No one else has asked us. I check everywhere. I checked YouTube. I read all the interviews. No one has asked this question, so somebody has to, and I will do it. Okay. (laughs) Okay. How did you get a name like Vonda?
0: (laughs) Okay. Um, It has been asked of me, but it's not in print, apparently. Um, (laughs) It's very (laughs) random. It's just, you know, my mom read it in a book, and she liked the name. Um, My parents were kind of bohemian, I won't say hippies, but just bohemians, because it was the 60s when I was born, and, you know, they just liked unusual names. So, you know, my sisters are not named Lisa and Carol.
1: <laughs> yes, <laughs> um, of so, course.
0: Yeah, that's, that's it. it
1: <laughs> so it's, it's not a car. It's not a, a 2020 Vonda.
0: No, and it's not a phone
1: service. Um, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> All right, so I, I stand corrected. I guess it was mentioned somewhere, but I, I just had to ask the question. The other thing I was fascinated by is you have a wonderful personality and sense of humor, and every time I see an interview that someone does of you, they're very somber and serious. And really? They, yes, I haven't seen uh, – meaning the person that's asking you the questions, they don't. I, I just don't mm-hmm. think they allow you to flower and flourish as mm-hmm. you do on stage with the audience. That just maybe may well, my take.
0: I mean, that's that's interesting. No one's ever told me that, but I do like to have a really good rapport with the audience, and I'm I don't take myself overly seriously on stage. I mean, I get into the heavy emotional songs a hundred percent. So, but between the songs, I'm known to kind of be silly and. <laughs> oh yeah, no, so,
1: I didn't mean yeah. you. I meant the person interviewing you.
0: Yeah, so that's why it's yeah. it, that's it's interesting that they would take that approach, um, and that's what you've been seeing out there.
1: Yeah, but listen, we'll change all that today, so very good. Okay. <laughs> now, just a little bit about your dad. He was a mime and an improv actor, right?
0: He certainly was, and he just he died in July. Um, but he was 90, so he had an amazing life. He was a total character, though. He was great.
1: And he had a chance to see your success.
0: He did. He did. I mean, you know, he was the guy who... When I was 16, you know, I'd say I want to go out and, to this club and see the band Kitty Hawk or somebody, you know, Sumner or one of these local bands, and he he'd give me twenty dollars and say, "Okay, go 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 watch go." And he provided piano lessons and vocal lessons and acting and dance and anything we anything we needed to go along that path. So he was very very supportive. And so to to have him see my success with Ally McDeal, among other, you know, I had. Gotten signed to Warner Brothers as well, which was a huge milestone in my life. So yeah, he got to see it.
1: That's great. If you look back so far in your career, and I know everybody talks about Ally McBeal, and we'll certainly reference it because that's where you were first, I think, brought to the American public on a large way because you were on every week and you were both acting yeah. and you were producing the music as well. Would you say that was the key for you, or is it one of several keys of touchstones in your career so far where you hit this, and you were very satisfied, then you hit that, and it was less satisfying but much more publicly known, in other words, if you, when you look at it from your perspective.
0: Well, um, it was the biggest break I had, you know, by far, without a doubt, but as I said, I had gotten signed to Warner Brothers Reprise Records when I was about 24, after doing four years of artist development, so I was incredibly anxious and eager to get a record deal and I finally got one and I actually had a couple of hits on that record so th- that was that was a big breakthrough I had a song called Don't Cry I Lean on my first album it got to number 11 not to number 10 <laughs> <laughs> close enough um, close enough but it was you know it, the, the it was when VH1 was playing videos and I had my video with my big hair and so that was that was actually a big moment because songs on the radio and also I had toured as you may know with other artists and right. I could go back to those cities and countries where I had toured with Al Jarreau and Ricky Lee Jones and um people like that so it was it was a great time and then obviously Ally McDell was massive success and it was my huge break but you know it's 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 like a part of my career like you say and to some people that's all they know it defines me but I have fans from before and even fans from after <laughs> that like my newer stuff and my old my really old stuff. so but man, that was a big break and it was um, I was ready for it.
1: Yeah, it was almost a launching, so to speak. Uh, it gave you a wider audience where you could develop as an artist later on. when you left the show, it then becomes a way to engage a larger audience and you can continue to develop as an artist.
0: That's right. That's true. And of course there was the challenge, as you can imagine, of making a set list because the hardcore Alley fans want to hear just, you know, tell him and hooked on a feeling and searching my soul. So it's been a long road over the years to introduce people to my other songs and a lot of those songs were actually on Allen Rekill so they you know, it was an easy landing for them, you know, with songs like The Wildest Times of the World or Baby Nair Big Heart Slow. So uh, but yeah, it's still it's an interesting um, process still in my career to kind of make myself really happy with the set list and also give people what they really want and people want different things. You know, if you're Cheryl Crow, you don't. It's not like she had a TV show or a movie that she's super known for. So she just does her set and she does her hits, obviously. So you know, it's different.
1: And you're independent in the sense that when I say independent or independent-minded. I don't mean that you're contrarian. What I mean is that you liked, and I introduced you as a singer-songwriter, that second part where you write your own songs. A lot of artists just sing other people's songs, which is fine, but you actually Mm -hmm. write and sing your own songs.
0: I do, and I started writing songs when I was about eight. Um, Because I grew up in that kind of a family, I recorded demos when I was nine. Amazing. Um, And they're pretty cool, actually. I should actually, I should release them, I'm just realizing. (laughs) Um, They're very well formed songs. Uh, You know, I I was a very introverted, artistic, creative child. And, you know, so um, I spent hours and hours writing. But yeah, so since then, I, I I've been a singer songwriter. And like literally yesterday, I started a new song for the new album. Uh, actually, the day before yesterday, and I went back to it yesterday, and I came up with another part. And I'm going, "Hey, I can still, <laughs> I can still do this."
1: <laughs> of course you yeah, can. Yeah, I guess yeah. I guess
0: you can if you sit there at the piano. You can do it. You can make w- it happen.
1: I would take those old songs of yours from as a kid, and I would digitize them, save them now for posterity.
0: Right. I should. You know, it's really funny. As a writer, I mean, you're a writer, obviously. Oh, I think you're. Are you a writer? I am. Yes. <laughs> <You're>, <laughs> yes. Okay. It, you just. It's so universal with writers, how you, you, you're kind of, I'm amazed at the process still. At my age and after doing it for this long, I'm still absolutely amazed when I write a song that I think is good. I'm just going, where did this come from? How did this come together? And it's almost like I forget the process once it's done. It's really fascinating.
1: But when you begin it again, it becomes instinctive, doesn't it? Where it just reappears. If you're a creative person, it just comes from this well that's way down below.
0: I guess so, yeah. But it really does take for me a massive amount of time editing, and that's because I just I can't stand you know cliches and or and I don't like lyrics that are half baked. So I, I really work hard at it, and it's 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 you know no one's telling me to do it, so it's for self discipline. It's it's a very intense life, but if I didn't have it and I didn't do it, I think I wouldn't have as much fulfillment. You know that's pretty obvious.
1: Sure, is the hard part yeah. the rewriting and then mm-hmm. the editing because there's two elements to it. There are the lyrics, mm-hmm. and then there's the music. And a lot of times, the hard part, the initial inspiration is great, and then you start to look at the lyrics, and you rewrite or you edit, and then the same with the music. So I guess both for you are combined in that process that is dreadful, but it has to be done. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, there are there are days when I sit at the piano and and I – you should hear my writing tapes. They're, I almost was thinking I should just release this because it's such an insight into how torturous it can be, you know. And I'll listen at the end. I'm like, at the end, I curse and I go, ah, God, like, I
1: don't know what to do. And I like actually
0: talk on the tape. Going, Where do I go from here?
1: And so it's, a, it's
0: it really is. It's a funny, it's a funny task because you do need both. You need to have the inspiration, which is the fun part. And then you have to do the grind of editing. And one of my favorite ways of editing is, is to work on a song for at least two, you know, two or three hours, record a bunch, and then get in the car and go meet someone for dinner and drive for you know 20 minutes and listen to the songs. And if they make me want to pull over and write, you know, I bring a journal in the car and I pull over. If they make me want to pull over and write lyrics, I go, okay, I'm on to something here.
1: Good idea. And also, too, the creative process is such that the initial inspiration is there. Then you put it aside, so to speak, and give a little distance. So you can come back and either look or listen to it objectively as, as well as you can and see where – does it work? Do I have to rewrite it? Do I have to edit it? Do I have to shed blood? Whatever it is. Mm-hmm. You know, that That's sense. right. And the
0: answer to the question always is yes, all of the <laughs> above. <laughs> all
1: right, I have a great idea for you. On the uh, Vonda Shepard website, which is VondaShepard.com, if you will install a webcam and then everybody can watch you torturously going through the creative process – I think mm-hmm. it would generate empathy and sympathy and <laughs> insight and chase away competitors because I'll say look what she's going through.
0: <laughs> that's that's actually really uh that's a funny idea and nowadays people actually do things like this. I mean, I guess it started with reality shows and and now it's like social media is so ubiquitous and people are so un um it's oh, the see, unselfconscious about exposing those most vulnerable you know, parts of your life. So, you yep, know, for me, right. that, that's not something I'm going to do, but it's,
1: really, <laughs> it's a cool idea. Well, <laughs> it's I, a cool idea. I think today's world, there are a lot of people that, who are online or on YouTube who are narcissistic, but not talented, and that's a deadly combination.
0: Oh, good point.
1: So, good But point. you, in your case, you are talented, so it doesn't matter. You should do Thank it. Thank you, Ira. <laughs> there you go. So. <laughs>
0: um, you know, it's it's a funny thing, that social media thing, because I'm extremely private, and it, I actually kind of have to force myself to do the social media, and I like getting the feedback from the fans. I actually really like it, and it does reach a lot of people, and then they can come and see me play live, which is the thing that I really want. Um, so it's one of those aspects of the music business that is completely um, 100% necessary these days.
1: And they're going to see you live at the Smith Center, as I mentioned, on March 20th and 21st at 7 p.m. You're going to enjoy Myron's Cabaret Jazz. It is a wonderfully intimate room, and it's perfect for your type of performance. Oh, good. Although I'm I know excited. you can do arenas and stadiums and continents, but still, it's good <laughs> to have a small, intimate room in that sense. Yeah, So
0: that's my favorite.
1: When you're working on recording... Albums, And you're always working on recording albums. You have, I think, 972,000 albums that you've produced so far. <laughs> and I'm, I'm fairly impressed because I have nothing to my name. I'm, I'm a multi-non-talented person, so that's how that works. But I, just for our listeners, you've you've sold over 12 million albums. You've earned two Golden Globe Awards, two Emmys, and two Screen Actors Guild Awards, and a Billboard Award for selling the most television soundtracks in history. So that, that's pretty impressive at your relatively young age.
0: Oh, you're so sweet. Relatively,
1: <laughs> you like that? How I threw that um, in there? Relatively young. Yeah. Well, you're not 18, yes. so that's what I'm saying. I mean, you still have yes. much more to, to contribute and to write and to work on. So, and you may you may have a few books in you as well. I have a feeling. I'm hoping to inspire you to write a book at some point.
0: Oh, thank you. I've sat down, you know, to write a book a few times, um, and I have a, about 750 journals to pull from. But you know, I'm I'm a mom now, and I have a 13-year-old, so I, I had a, I had him rather late. So my focus is the book is going to come later, I'm pretty sure. You know, as well as the cookbook, which people keep asking me for because I like to post recipes on my website and online. But it's it's yeah, it's um I've done some had a really good career so far, and it and there's more to come. And I realize you know when I slow down a little bit, and I allow myself to slow down. I think I'm not ready to retire. Definitely not. No, no,
1: not at all. And the fact that you have a 13-year-old son, he can help you with the computer.
0: That's correct. And he also can help me, like, introduce me to cool new music, which he does. And I I really actually like a lot of it. I mean, he listens to hip-hop, but there are some grooves in there that I've been inspired by, actually. So, yeah, it's really
1: cool. That might be coming up. Well, let's take a break. My guest singer-songwriter Vonda Shepard is performing in Myron's Cabaret Jazz at the Smith Center this Friday and Saturday, March 20th and 21st at 7 p.m. For ticket information, go to the SmithCenter.com And for everything about Vonda Shepard, go to vondashepard.com and follow her on Twitter at Vonda Shepherd. We'll be right back.
0: We'll be back with more Talk About Las Vegas with Ira in just a moment.
1: There's something new at the Neon Museum. The emerging technology of light mapping brings old signs back to life. Forgotten artifacts of our past that once blazed in the Las Vegas night are reanimated in a dazzling immersion of sight and sound. You've never seen anything like it because there's never been anything like it. Brilliant, a Neon Museum experience. Performances nightly. Join the experience now at neonmuseum.org.
0: Now, let's get back to Talk About Las Vegas with
1: Ira. Welcome back. I'm talking with singer-songwriter Vonda Shepard. She's performing in Myron's Cabaret Jazz at the Smith Center this Friday and Saturday, March 20th and 21st at 7 p.m. For ticket information, go to thesmithcenter.com. And for everything about Vonda Shepard, go to vondashepard.com and you can follow her on Twitter at Vonda Shepard. And Vonda, with all the albums you work, on and produce and record are there fifty percent of them on vinyl ten percent five percent because i know vinyl is in a resurgent mode now and it looked like it was disappearing altogether i was just curious whether or not you have decided on album x being on vinyl and album y not or how does that work for you
0: okay um yes i do have three of my albums on vinyl um well it was so evident like that people were there was a demand for it, because I like to sign, I sign merch, you know, after the show, I sign right. CDs, and now I sign vinyl, and, and so many people that started in Europe would come up and say, you know, do you have It's Good Eve on vinyl, it's my favorite album. It's Good Eve was, was an album that I did before Allie McBeal, and it's how I got the job on the show. All of those songs were, you know, part of the inspiration for David Kelly. But anyway, that was an obvious one, because it's one of my classic albums, and I had just been putting out Rookie, which is my last studio album. Um so I put out rookie and we said, Oh, definitely making vinyl. So I have it of that and then by seven thirty is another of the favorite albums. Um, it actually was released during the alley time so it, it actually sold quite a lot of copies. So I thought, okay, we'll do this. So we started with three and I'll definitely put it out um the new album out on vinyl, which will be out in about a year, I'm guessing. I'm thinking. I've got three or four songs done now. So
1: a year. Do you have a title for it? Or can you reveal it um, at this point? I'm, um. You don't have I'm to I'm so still thinking of it.
0: I'm thinking about it. Yeah, okay. that, that's a tough one. I have a new song that's it's called Shine Your Light, but that's that sounds a little corny, so I probably won't call it that. But I might call it Shine Bright, or I might call it, um, I have a few other ideas. Or
1: Shine on Harvest Moon, that would probably be okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll take that. There yeah. you go. Now, the <laughs> one thing about vinyl is that, because I remember you were talking in one interview about how it's, Hard with vinyl, you could read uh, liner notes, which is very yes. hard to do, and it's hard to read liner notes on an MP3 file. So I think mm-hmm. I agree with you that either CD or vinyl album is the way to go if you can do it. And there's still turntables that are being sold, and oh yeah, it works very well. So it's great to see that platform being used again, which for a while it looked like it was not going to be.
0: I know it's really really nice, and like you said about reading liner notes, I mean I don't know how old you are, but you know, in the 70s, that was what I would do. I would like lie down on the, my bed and unhold tapestry or Mudslide Slim on vinyl and mm-hmm. just like read the lyrics as I listen to the album on my turntable. And it's like, it's it makes you slow down and calm down. And you don't have to be on a computer looking up lyrics on, on Wikipedia or, you know, whatever, wherever they have lyrics these days. And a lot of times those are wrong, by the way. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, and you get to see the, the special thanks on the album and like any. Anything—it's just really—I'm really happy that it's come back.
1: Actually, yeah, it's similar to reading a book versus reading on your iPhone. Mm-hmm, that's right. It's just a different kind of feel to it. I want to talk a little bit about a song that you do, and it's mm-hmm. a classic one and goes back decades. Actually, "You Belong to Me." Uh, mm-hmm. It was originally originally by originally by Joni James, and then Joe Stafford and Patti Page did it. And the Duprees did it in 1962. And then, of course, Von the Shepherd did it, and it's on one of your albums, and I enjoy it because there's something about a good song that survives or prospers through the decades.
0: There sure is.
1: Please tell us a little bit about the decision to use that song. Was it your decision as the music producer for the show, or was it collaboration, and then what is it that it evokes in people, or seems to evoke in people, that makes it so popular?
0: As with all the, sh- uh, the songs on the show, Allie McBeal, David Kelly chose them, and he incorporated the lyrics right into the script, so he was very specific about which songs he wanted. That song rings very true and deep for me, and when I sing it, every single time I sing it, except when I'm practicing and I have to just run it a bunch of times to mm-hmm. make sure I have it, when I'm on stage, I feel it very, very intensely, and um, it's got such beautiful imagery, you know, you it's old, so old school see the pyramids along the Nile, watch the sunrise on the topical. And um, it really hits me. Like It's like a, I felt like I could have written it, um, meaning I'm that close to the song, you know?
1: Right. And it has that effect not just on you as the singer, but the audience as well. And the fact that you do it in the now and that you feel it communicates that to the audience, and they interpret not only the lyrics and music of the song, but your emoting of it as well.
0: Mm-hmm. That's, that's true. And we, we never leave that one out just so the you know, the people know we always do. You belong to me toward the end. And, you know, that's one, that's just something I will always do in my shows along with certain other ones. But uh, yeah, my, and you know, after I recorded it, many years later, my dad told me that it it was one of his favorite songs, and his mom used to sing it to him. So it was almost like this cellular memory kind of situation, you know?
1: Yes, coming full circle, actually, in a sense. Yes, from a from exactly. a family standpoint and a society standpoint. I should also point out that just for the record, it's David E. Kelly, because I don't want to get sued by missing little okay. initial. You know, uh, just call him e (laughs) (laughs) well you know him better than i I don't know him at all so he's not going to sue you i know his wife is michelle pfeiffer so the two of them went to see you as i understand the story went to see you perform and said ah perfect person for this that's
0: true and they i mean i was friends with them i invited them to the show so it was kind of it was serendipitous in the timing because it was that when he was putting Allie mcbill together but our friendship had been, well, I was very close with Michelle for many, many years before that. So it was uh, a turning point, that's for sure.
1: Did you have any particular role models from the point of view of singing and or songwriting when you were growing up? Because you seemed to have a certain unique style and performance and creativity, but did you rely or did you look to certain role models growing up to get some of that together for you?
0: I would say that it was... Inspiration, you know, I was, I was I was listening to music constantly, and huge influences were, Carol King, Elton John, Stevie Wonder, Shaka Khan, James Taylor, Paul Simon, Joni Mitchell, the singer-songwriters, and also the soul artists like, you know, like I said, Stevie, and and my voice is definitely kind of known as a soul voice or soulful voice, and the older I get, you know, the lower my voice gets. The older I get, the more I kind of seem to go in that direction. But as a songwriter, I still want to have the, those killer lyrics that, you know, are unique. So it's, it's a, yeah, it is a combination of, of those two styles, probably.
1: And have you had the opportunity, given your career, to meet some of those people that you look to as either role models or just that you were listening to their music when you were growing up?
0: Oh, I've met, I've met quite a few of them, and I've worked with some of them, which was just amazing. I met I became not friends but like friendly with Joni Mitchell cuz she was friends with a good friend and when I recorded the the song River with Robert Downey Jr. after I recorded it I got to sit at a dinner party and, next to Joni Mitchell and she said I love what you did with River it's my favorite version <laughs> I'm my like, holy shit I went,
1: <laughs> <laughs> that one you always remember right
0: Yeah I remember yeah, that uh, and of then, course. you know I met and then Elton John was on Ally McBeal. I didn't produce him. He was one of the few artists I didn't produce, but I met him on the set. And, you know, he gave me a big hug, and um, I, I knew James Taylor because my boyfriend was his guitar player. So I'd go out on the road with them a lot. I auditioned for Stevie Wonder when I was in my early 20s, and that was just one of the trippiest nights of my life because it was an open call, <laughs> cattle call, um, and there were probably a couple hundred people auditioning for him. And I got to get up there. By the time I got up on stage, it was about two or three in the morning. And, uh, you know, so I got to meet a lot of people, not not become close friends with them, but just, right, right. you know, And Jackson Brown actually is a close friend. And uh, he was also, I used to listen to him all the time.
1: Did any of those singers give you advice on how to maintain a strong career through the decades? Was there a particular approach that all of these. I won't say mentors for you, but certainly models for you. Did any of them have advice as to how to sustain a career over a long period of time?
0: No one gave me that specific advice, but I do remember some guiding words from people like Jackson. You know, I opened for Jackson Brown as well as sang with him for two. I, I sang with him for one tour, and then I opened with him and sang with him for the next tour. And I used to sit at, um, at Soundcheck and like play a song here or there. And he would say to me, one time he said to me, you know, when you're looking out there in the audience and you think no one's listening or you think, you know, that everyone's talking, he said, just know that there's someone in the last row who's totally into it and listening intensely. And he said, those people are out there even if you don't know it. So, and that's the kind of thing that keeps you going, you know?
1: That's a great piece of advice because it can be very discouraging on a, especially on live tours where you get into certain venues or cities and it, mm-hmm. you're not sure just because mm-hmm. of the dynamic. Not necessarily the numbers in the audience, just there's certain audiences that you, you don't get the right feel for and you don't know whether you're making an impact. And in fact, as he said, though, that person in the last row makes it all worthwhile.
0: Yes. And you're moving people and you may not know it, like you said. And even my husband has said to me, you know, just because the loudest song or the like most raucous song gets the most applause he said the you know the quieter songs that can be the deepest songs people can like much more but they don't have that that, that sort of visceral automatic reaction where you where you jump up on your feet and start screaming and clapping and he said but it's just as powerful so that was good advice as well
1: it know? is the louder songs i think are more manipulative and that mm-hmm. they will get the audience to stand up and applaud meaning high tempo song it just gets everybody moving and almost by nature they're going to get up and applaud or scream or holler or whatever but the gentler the gentler songs and the ones that are insightful and the ones like you belong to me it hits a certain nerve and it may not the audience may not react that same way but they're, they're definitely feeling it
0: yeah for sure yeah and just so you know as far as my show at the smith center and when i play live we, we do a really pretty dynamic show where we have both. We've got, you know, I, just me alone at the piano for a couple songs at times, and then I have an amazing band you may have read about. I uh, have. So we You know, we do we do some funky tunes, we do some mid-tempo tunes, and then at the end, we do a few really rocking ones, and it's, you know, and the place should by the end, should feel like they want to jump up and have fun and go crazy, and um, so that's what that's what we do. Well, no and doubt about
1: it, and you're there for two nights too. And before yeah. I let you go, why don't you uh, let us know the members of your band? It's a quartet, right?
0: Yes, and the guitar player is James Ralston, and he played with Tina Turner for 22 years. And Jim Hansen is on bass. And he's been with me over 20 years, and wow. he's he's played with Johnny. Yeah, exactly. He's played with Johnny Cash and Rodney Crowell and uh, Springsteen. And then there's my drummer Fritz Lewack, where, who I met when I played with Jackson Brown. He's Jackson's drummer for about 28 years. This so it's an amazing band, and we've been playing together a long time. We're pretty tight.
1: That's great. Well, that's a great way to leave it. And I appreciate yeah. it. My guest has been singer-songwriter Vonda Shepard. She's performing in Myron's Cabaret Jazz at the Smith Center this Friday and Saturday, March 20th and 21st at 7 p.m. For ticket information, go to thesmithcenter.com. And for everything about Vonda Shepard, go to vondashepard.com. And you can follow her on Twitter at Vonda Shepard. Vonda, thanks for being on the show.
0: Thank you so much, Ira. It was really good to talk to you.
1: Same here. See you next time.
0: You've been listening to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the
1: most exciting city in the world. Be Las Vegas.